So we have come to the last in our series on Jesus and the five W's. Now, there are a number of people here I know who haven't been able to be here in the last few weeks, but for those of you who have missed the past few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been taking an explorative look at five questions that are asked when we want to understand something better. Um, and, and these five W's are W's, or, or, and, and one H at least, um, that we've all used, and if you haven't used it yet, you will use it, but they are who, what, where, when, why, and how. And according to the principles of the five W's, a report can only be considered complete if it answers all of those five questions. And so what we've done over the last while is we've pointed those questions at Jesus, and we've tried to um, wrestle with some of, the, some of the answers of those questions um, as they relate to Jesus and how that applies to us as followers of Jesus. If you want to catch up, those sermons are on our website. You can go there. You can have a listen to some of them if you would like to. So this evening, we are asking the question, um, why did Jesus come? And how does change come about through Jesus? Um, that's a lot. <laughs> and I am not going to be able to do justice to all of the all of the manifold details that are rolled into those questions, but we're going to take a stab at some of the things that, that jump out at us. And so as we look at how and why, um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll break up the questions into two parts, and what I'd like to do this evening is to take a different approach. Um, and, I'll, and I'll mention that approach in greater detail in a, in a minute. But we're going to start our evening by reading a portion of Scripture from the book of Colossians. Um, and I was wondering if I could ask someone to read that for us. I hear a volunteer. <laughs> you can stand right there, have a look at the screen and read for us. Hi. Okay, sorry. Just testing. Okay, Colossians 1, 13 to 23. For he was rescued from us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with a throne... <clears throat> Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and he through him to reconcile <clears throat> to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's 
physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thank you, Luke. I'm going to ask you to read some more for us later. Um, but what I'd like to do is to, is to take those verses that was written by the Apostle Paul um, and, and to try to have us understand them in a different way. Um, now, over the past few weeks, um, we've been quite analytical in how we've approached those five W questions. Um, and, and so what I'd like to do this evening is to have maybe a more imaginative approach um, by unpacking this, this portion of Scripture where the writer, the Apostle Paul, actually describes the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Big words. And so we'll try to be less analytical and try to engage our imaginations a little bit more. And so, and so we'll try to meditate, as it were, about what these images are um, that go along with the, the narrative, the story that um, Paul is actually telling us here. And so as you imagine the unfolding of this story, I want you to keep those two questions of why and how in the, in the back of your mind. Now, there, as, I, as, I, as I reinterpret, as I paraphrase um, this story, there are going to be some, some details that I'm going to leave out um, that you might fill in in your mind as you imagine um, the imagery from the, the, the text here. Um, I won't have any slides with pictures to allow you the room to have your own pictures. And then when we're done with that, we'll share a little bit from, from one another what, what, we, what we see in our mind's eye as we interpret this. So, so what you might want to do is you might want to close your eyes um, or, or, or slowly read through the text if you want. Um, but try to track with the imagery as we, as we move. So Paul indirectly titles this story in Colossians in a different letter that he had written to the church at Ephesus. Um, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11, he titles it. Um, and I've, I've taken that title there, and I've taken some poetic license and call it Yahweh's eternal purpose. So, so here we go. Yahweh's eternal purpose, oversimplified, is that Yahweh wanted to impart his life and his love to a creature he had not yet created, so that this creature could share and make his life and his love visible as an aspect of Yahweh's eternal purpose. The story begins in eternity, before the foundations of the world, before angels and atoms, before sand and stone, before water and air, before flesh and bone, 
before the Lord spoke the words, let there be. Yahweh is there. His son, Jesus, is present. The Holy Spirit is in attendance. They live in a realm that is unseen, a realm the ancient writers call Shamaim, a realm the New Testament writers call Uranus, a realm that we call heaven. Yahweh said, let there be. And alongside this unseen realm, this visible realm came into existence. The ancient writers call this visible realm Eretz. The New Testament writers call it Gei, and we call it Earth. And so Yahweh created all things by his Son, Jesus, through his Son, Jesus, for his Son, Jesus. He created things that are both seen and he created things that are unseen. He created things both in the heavens and he created things on the earth. All of these created things bear the imprint of Jesus the Creator. We see his imprint in the sun. We see his imprint in the moon. We see his imprint on all of the earth. And all of them declare the glory of Yahweh. Yahweh then invites this special creature that he had created in his own image into a relationship. They had fellowship in the garden that he had made. But unfortunately, Yahweh then sees the apex of his creation, this special creature, invite tragedy into perfection. And all of the created beauty falls down. But because of his great love for us, Yahweh sets out to restore his creation. As part of his eternal purpose, Yahweh then chooses one of his special created beings who he counted as righteous because of his faith to become the one through whom he could restore and reestablish the broken relationship between himself and these creatures who were supposed to reflect his life and his love in a visible, physical form. But those chosen ones, called Israel, fell down. Yahweh then does something drastic. He does something radical. He himself enters into this visible, physical universe. He leaves behind the unseen realm and eternity, giving up his divine privileges and pierces into this realm that is limited by time and space. He humbles himself 
He takes on human form. He is born to a Jewish girl alongside animals in a little village outside of the big city called Bethlehem. Not a nice, comfortable entrance point for the designer and the creator of everything that we see to be born. He lives among us, grows up, and becomes a laborer, working with stone and wood, disguised as what we might call today a nobody. But then the fullness of time comes, and the Father Yahweh elevates his Son Jesus to the highest of honors on a cross. But here he is no longer a nobody, as though he ever was, but is given the name above all other names, a name that will make every knee bow in the unseen realm of heaven and in the seen physical realm of earth and even under the earth. And every creature will again, again declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of Yahweh the Father. Jesus Christ the Son then has reconciled everything back to himself. And the life and the love of the Father is visible again through God's eternal purpose. Amen. So there's a, a, um, a different view of understanding, I think, what Paul is writing here. But I'd like to hear from some of us here, um, even as we reflect on that scripture there, what are some of the pictures that you had in your mind that might help some of the rest of us see from a different perspective? Is there maybe someone who would like to share? The fact that he humbled himself. He, in essence, made the first move, and the first move wasn't to come in pomp and glory. Hey, Julie? Yeah, that image of, the, of how he comes in. Um, when I thought about it, I, had, I don't know, I had this picture of Superman coming in with a, you know, I don't know if you guys saw Superman. Is that, is that too old? <laughs> okay. So that's a, that's a brief summary of the story of God's love for us and a big part of his eternal purpose that Paul mentions in Ephesians. Now, I want to list very briefly um, all of what it is that Christ has done and secured for us in his drastic and his radical act of of piercing into our existence and accomplishing what he, what he did. And it involves the why and the how. And so what he has accomplished for us is regeneration. He has brought us from death to life. 
Justification from guilt to acquittal. Adoption from rejection to acceptance. Redemption from bondage to liberation. Citizenship from Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. Atonement from retribution to propitiation. Reconciliation from enmity to friendship, illumination from darkness to light, sanctification from impurity to purity, fruitfulness from barrenness to, pro to productivity, transformation from being deformed to being glorified, participation from being separate to being unified, and then there's salvation from being defeated to being victorious. Now that's a list of how God effectively brings us back into a space of reflecting his life and his love in a visible way as part of his eternal purpose. Now it will take us um, many years, eh Craig? <laughs> many years and hours of study and meditation to not only understand everything under those headings, but also to incorporate them into our lives. For example, the, the ministry of reconciliation. It has taken many people, as an example, all of their lives to work at reconciling themselves back to God, understanding what that means, and then as an extension of that to bring people who once were segregated back together and back to God. And so in, in all of those things, there is just so much depth in what Christ has done for us. And so that's why this is important. Um, spending time together and with God. And, 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 and it is so valuable and important because you could end up living an extremely shallow spiritual life if you don't get into all of this stuff. And you will have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is. And this is only the introduction. There's so much more to it. Okay, now for the next few minutes, I want us to focus just on the very first one there, um, regeneration. And what I'd like us to do now is to look at a very well-known scripture as a, as a case study, as, a, as, a, um, um, as an example. And some would say that this is the best known scripture to most people. And what we'll do is we'll talk about what we see as we try to to meditate on why he came and how he brings about the change that he does bring about. And so, Luke, I'm going to ask you to come read again. Um, and so, what do you think? What text are we going to read from? Okay. All right. John 3. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. John 3. Now... There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, 
for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows... The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. How can this be? said Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever, <clears throat> but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thank you. Do you do you recognize that those verses? Would you agree that they are part of some of the best known verses to people? You think so? Um, so so we're kind of familiar with that. What are what are some things that stand out to you immediately? And we're gonna. I've got some questions here just to help us process some of it. Um, and, and we'll, we'll try and incorporate the questions that we've used over the last few weeks um, as we unpack some of this. But what's some of the things that stand out to you immediately about that story? Yeah. So did you get that? So he's saying that Nicodemus, who was this well-known guy, came to Jesus because he had a need a spiritual need, and he sensed that Jesus had an answer for him. Mm. Thanks, Mike. So there's just that emphasis again in, in, in how Mike and what, even what Johannes is saying there. Like, this is the bottom line. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And, um, and you need to actually, <laughs> you need to get on board so what do we think the significance was of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night was? It's quite interesting that that detail is mentioned there. He comes to Jesus at night. Okay, so George thinks maybe it was load shedding. <laughs> 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 so, 
So his coming at night might not have been of any consequence. It could just have been load shedding. Yes, what do you think? That's a good reason. Did you hear that? So there was an opportunity when Jesus was away from the crowds. It was possibly at a time where he was resting at the end of the day to have some deep conversation, meaningful conversation one-on-one um, with Jesus. So there, there's a reason that he might have come at night. Anything else? Mike? Yeah, so there's a very real, as Mike is saying, there's a very real, there's some evidence that he could have been embarrassed to be seen with Jesus. Um, Nicodemus, having been a Pharisee, um, a Jewish leader, he was at the top, the very top of religious teachings. He would be, in our modern day context, he'd be someone like a professor, he'd be a specialist. Um, and, and he would be the kind of guy who you would consider, if he doesn't know, then nobody will know. And so him going to Jesus, for him might have felt, people can't see me here right now. <laughs> there would have been that social embarrassment and questions around this particular Jewish teacher. Um, now, what do we think... Um, he thinks Jesus came to do. Yeah, the text says they, that they believe that he was, that Jesus was a teacher who was sent from God. Um, and so there was actually, on Nicodemus's part, a level of respect, um, a, a degree of acceptance that this man has some kind of authority from God. And so he came there to, in a sense, investigate. He was curious. He wanted to find out more. And then very possibly as well, and we'll unpack this in a minute, he maybe thought about the fact of whether or not he was in this kingdom that Jesus was preaching about. And so that was that might have been something that was bothering him. Now, what do we think about what Nicodemus's understanding of Jesus was? In what way does Nicodemus understand Jesus? Does he does he um, does he see Jesus as as a, a, a um, as his teaching being only highfalutin and um, philosophical? Or, or how does he interpret what Jesus says? What do you think? Yeah. It seems like he's taking Jesus literally. Like Jesus is talking about, um, you know, actually um, going back into your, into your mother's womb and then coming down out of it again. He's, um, in, in that sense, he's kind of actually a little bit confused because Jesus actually says something to him that exposes his possibly his understanding of, of ancient Jewish texts as well. Because Jesus' new birth teaching is actually something that is rooted in a Jewish concept that is called teshuva. And this Hebrew idea called teshuva conveys a Jewish 
new birth experience. And teshuva means to return or, um, or a returning. And so Jesus is using an Old Testament concept here of teshuva, a return to the right way and an ultimate return to God. We actually read about this idea of teshuva in Hosea chapter 14 and verse 2, where Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord. Let us teshuva to the Lord. And then in Psalm 51, David seeks return. He seeks teshuva for having committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then we also read about it in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And so what Jesus does here actually is, he takes this Jewish teaching of teshuva, which is something that Nicodemus should have understood if you follow the interaction that he's having with Jesus, of returning back to God. But Jesus takes it further by revealing a start that goes beyond just returning. A start that actually makes you brand new. A start that he calls being born again. And so what Jesus does here is, it's actually part of him, as I interpret it, it is part of him bringing to completion what the Old Testament has started in the New Testament. He, he's doing that. He's drawing and bringing the, the, the story that the old prophets had started to, to um, communicate to God's people, and he's bringing it to its fullness here. And so he brings a more complete meaning with the fact that when we come to Jesus, yes, we are returning to God. If you remember that um, the, the, the text that we read out of Colossians. Um, and, and so we have all been separated from God, but now there is a returning to him. And this new birth is an experience and it begins when we turn to Jesus and we accept him as our Savior, but it keeps growing. Like a newborn baby, at the time of new birth, our eyes just begin to open. We see that something drastic has happened to us. And we begin to breathe the air of a new life. And we sense our increasing need of something better. And then as we get to know our Father better, we grow from drinking milk to solid food. And through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the sons of Adam may become then the sons of God. By assuming human nature, Jesus elevates humanity. Some of what Craig preached this morning as we were looking through Daniel chapter 7. Fallen men are placed where through connection with Christ, 
they may become worthy again of being called sons of God. Now, the story here, um, it actually doesn't end by telling us what happened with Nicodemus. What do you think happened? What do you think? If you kind of, you, you, you track the interaction um, that they had, um, and then Jesus starts to show him something, this Jewish teacher that he didn't know, um, that brought some kind of confusion to him. How do you think that interaction ended? What's your sense? Adam. Okay. So, so Adam is saying, yeah, he, he feels that pull, but there's, there's something in the way? There's something in the way. Amy, what do you say? Yeah. So William identifies there that Jesus knew his heart over his, his responses. Grant? Thank you. Did you get that? So, so there's kind of like a, a, Jesus is modeling a kind of evangelism here that doesn't um, lead somebody to himself, <laughs> as it were, in the way that we do evangelism. So, they, so, so he's saying that the, the deep questions that get left build a deep faith. Um, and, and Mr. Lawrence? That's a good one. It kind of ties in with what you're saying, eh? Thank you. Um, now, now, how do we think Nicodemus's response compares to a modern-day response um, to this command to be born again? How do, how do some of the people who you move with, how do you think they respond to this idea of being born again. How is that idea viewed today? Adam. Mm. So, yeah, so William is saying there's for him a certainty about this thing of being born again that his experience has been that it's, it's a real thing. Last one, and then we're going to kind of wrap up. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like we, 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 we share the idea that there is this, um, this perception about this notion of being born again that Jesus speaks about here. Um, and some people in our experience with the people who we know, 
Um, they think only born, being born again is it's for, a, for a particular kind of person. Um, maybe it's a, it's a kind of person who's more, um, more emotional, um, possibly a person who's, who's, uh, who's more charismatic or someone who's, who's, who's unsure of themselves. We kind of um, like to put people in boxes when we think about what the kind of person could be who could be born again. And so some people might say, just like Nicodemus at that particular point, we know how, how his story ends. Um, but some people might say, you know what, this what you're talking about, it's impossible, man. This notion of being born again, I, I don't believe that. And I've had some kind of interactions with people where that has been the response. You're talking nonsense to me, man. And I've even heard people say to me, um, God cannot save me. I don't know if you've had that experience yet. Um, and you know what? Um, there's, there's this notion of it being an impossibility for some people. And to a very real extent, um, while it is possible as we as believers of Christ understand that being born again is possible, yes, it's a surety as William said, um, some people might say, you know what, it would take a miracle for me to be born again. And they are exactly right about that. <laughs> hey? It does take a miracle for us to be born again. The idea and the concept is so far out there that it takes such a drastic, radical move on the part of God to make it possible, and he does. And that's why it's something that only God can do by his spirit. No amount of, of, of making sacrifices, no amount of doing good deeds, no amount of trying to please God is going to make this miracle of being born again happen. It only happens through the Spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying there to him. And I want to leave that with us this evening. Even as we go out into this week and we encounter people um, who might believe that what we are talking about is impossible and what we are talking about is foolishness. That we are reminded that ever since Jesus himself walked the earth, there were people like there are people today who believe that it's not possible.